Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And welcome back to another episode of Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I'm joined with my favorite ghoul friend, Jessica. Wingapo. Wow, it's been a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I forgot you minute. used to say that. <laughs> I do. We have merch that says it. Yes, check it. Today, we are going to be talking about medical murders, as you might be able to see by the title. Jessica and I are going to do a case each. So she's got a psycho dude and I got a psycho batshit lady. So it's going to be fun. I'm excited. But if you're new here, we want to say hello and welcome. You can find us on all the social medias. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that great stuff. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls. And we have an amazing Facebook group as well called Three Spooked Girls Official. And currently in our time, it's been getting flooded with Mothman stuff. So it's been really fun. <laughs> yes. Not so fun for Jessica, because one was a bird. (laughs) That bird is so scary to me. And it's like, I know Allison said that it seems super chill and everything. But like, the fact that it's a bird, and it's like as tall as me, let's face it, the thing is as tall as me. And I'm like, um, in hand to hand combat, you have a beak. And talons. So no, thank you. (laughs) Right. No, I just and it could drop from the sky. I don't know. Like, Tara knows this, but, like, listeners, you might not know that I have an aversion to birds. Like, I am so scared. And Tara has seen me run from, like, finches. Like, little birds. It's the sound their wings make. It gives me the heebies. And then I think that they're going to go all birds on me, like the movie, and attack me. That's okay. It's valid. It's valid. You got hit by a bird at Disney. So, you know. Oh, my God. Tara was there. It was the... (laughs) When you're afraid of something, it, like, comes, like... It's like Ron in Harry Potter, like, how he's freaking afraid of spiders and then like every freaking movie they're like here's a spider for you to deal with right oh gosh same thing Yes, yes. But if you would like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon. We have a handy link tree that has all of our Three Spooked Girl links in the show notes. Or you can go to patreon.com slash Three Spooked Girls. For as little as a dollar, you get bonus content each month. This month, all patrons are getting two bonus episodes from us because we did a long discussion on the Falling for a Killer documentary with Ted Bundy. Mm Mm-hmm. And we, in our time last week, we recorded Jessica Slaughter's movie reviews. So two and up patrons, y'all voted to have that drop first before the part two. So that will be, should be out already for you. Um, I just had a sore throat and that was it. I'm good. Besides that, trust me, I checked with my doctor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, But yeah, so 
come hang out with us there if you'd like to support the show. We have a bunch of different tiers. You get all kinds of bonus content, and we've set a new goal since we've met our first one. We would now love and have our minds blown if we get to 75 patrons. We're wanting to kind of upgrade our areas where we record in and help soundproof and all of that. We got newer mics, but we're working on the sound still a little bit. So yeah, that's just kind of our next goal. But with that, before we get any more chatty, we're going to take our quick promo break and we will be right back. This is Edward October for October Pod Take One. We know a remote farm in Lancaster where Mrs. Buckram lives. Every July, pumpkins grow there. You really mean that? I think you're reading the wrong script. You're supposed to be telling folk about October Pod. Let me, um, let me get you a copy of the new script. <clears throat> but, but that's bad copy. I think it's so nice that you see a snow-covered field and say every July pumpkins grow there. Ed, what are you what are you looking at? What snow-covered field? This is an audio promo. Edward October for October Pod, take two. We know of a fjord in Norway, near where the cod gather in great shoals. There, Jorg Tostensen frees the cod, adding a cr- crumb-crisp coating. Ooh, that's tough. Crumb-crisp coating. Let's just talk about October Pod. You see, Ed, I was thinking... Ed wasn't drinking! What? I said thinking. I was thinking we should just talk about your show. You know, Octoberpod? Retro horror for bold individualists? I didn't say anything about drinking. You didn't say it. He said it. Who are you talking to? Your friend. There's no one else in here. Edward October for Octoberpod, take three. This is a lot of shit. You know that, don't you? Now, you want another one on what? Peas? Stream Octoberpod. Available now on YouTube, Vimeo, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Podchaser, and at OctoberPodVHS.com. OctoberPod, retro horror for bold individualists. And welcome back, guys. Before we get started, Jessica's going to tell us what this week's drink is and then what her case is all about. So because we're doing a medical theme, and really it's about medical professionals killing people, I thought maybe I would give you the healing elixir of that of a hot toddy. Because I know that on cold days when I'm not feeling well, hot toddies are amazing. So I'm going to give actually give you the inst- the ingredients this time. You need whiskey, <laughs> honey, lemon, and water. You mix them together. Sometimes people put like cinnamon in it. You know, do you? Mm-hmm. Do you? But it's good. It's good for the soul. It's good for the soul. And your body. <laughs> there you go. The more you know. Yes, the more you know. Like Tara said, this week we're discussing medical murders. My case is of a dude. He's a doctor and he's he's horrible. Let's put it that way. So his name is Joseph Michael Swango and he was born October 21st, 1954. He also has a few other names like David J. Adams, Michael Kirk, Jack Kirk, Michael Swan. He also has a very fun nickname of Dr. Death or 007 License to Kill. He was born in Tacoma, Washington, like all serial killers. Fucking Washington. We love you. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Every time it's like I'm looking up something lately, it's been like in Tacoma, Washington. I'm like, what the f- is it just like, here's your serial killer card. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) I don't know if it's like the rain. I don't know. Anyway, so he was born in Tacoma, Washington to Mural and John Virgil Swango. Joseph, or as he preferred to be called, Michael, was their middle child. 
So shortly after, the family moved from Tacoma, Washington to Quincy, Illinois. Michael's father was a career U.S. Army officer. He served in Vietnam and like many veterans of the Vietnam War, became an alcoholic and he became very depressed. This led to him divorcing Mural and really kind of just abandoning his fatherly duties. Michael didn't see him much throughout his childhood. I read in one article that his father was neglectful, but he was also violent. Mm. And on one of the YouTube channels I was watching about this, they basically were saying how his mother was like a cold person and favored one of his other brother, like his other brother, which sucks because it's like <laughs> you probably as a middle child of sorts, you, you get like that middle child complex. Oh, yeah. You're like, I hate life. So Michael was very intelligent. In fact, he graduated a valid Victorian of his high school in 1972. He went to Quincy Catholic Boys High School, even though his family was like Lutheran. Okay. It's interesting. Yeah. He had a full ride scholarship to go to a college in Illinois, but turned it down to join the Marines, where he was trained to be a sharpshooter. Now, I know what you're thinking, people. You're like, oh, he's a sharpshooter. How is this going to play into the case? It doesn't at all. (laughs) (laughs) But he was honorably discharged after four years, which I'm pretty sure back then people served four years. Mm -hmm. I know now some people, I think it's six. Yeah, it just depends. I don't know things. When he was in the Marine Corps, he became obsessed with being like physically fit. He was seen often working out. Um, Like, he'd be around campus and he'd be doing push-ups and stuff like that, which is kind of weird because he would also do this anytime he was criticized. So, like, let's say I was like, Tara, like, let's say you made a mistake. And I was like, Tara, you wrote kerfuffle instead (laughs) of whatever word you were supposed to. He would just drop and do 50 push-ups. Oh, okay. I don't know why. Interesting. It's weird. So after the Marine Corps, he registered and went to Quincy University, and he graduated summa cum laude and was given the American Chemical Society Award, which is awarded to one student in the United States per year. Wow. So, like, it was kind of a big deal. And that kind of shows you, like, how intelligent he was. And so his hometown was just like, oh, my God, Michael Swango is amazing. From there, he went to medical school because he had had a fascination with anatomy and stuff like that. And he went to the medical school at Southern Illinois University. And he really didn't like to study. He was more interested in like being an ambulance attendant than studying. So basically, he graduates from med school. And one of the things that they noted is that he had a real fascination with dying patients. Oh, that's not creepy. No, not at all. Like, he'd watch them and stuff like that and study them. After he went to this school, he went and did his residency at Ohio State University Medical Center. And it was becoming noticeable that when Michael was working, a lot of his patients would end up coding or have some sort of, like, weird trauma happen. And he was doing his residency for, like, neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. That's not a good thing. No, and like, so nurses started to like pay attention because they're like, oh my God, all of a sudden out of nowhere, our hospital has like an influx of traumatic events, like people who are on the up and up, like people who were in there for like a broken leg, you know, or had been in a car accident or, you know, had cancer, but was in there for chemo or something like that. Like they would suddenly get sick and die. 
Mm. Something to note that I don't know if any of you have been in the hospital, but typically nurses administer anything through shots, Mm -hmm. which is the thing. So it was weird, like he would. Some of the nurses were like, okay, something's going on. And they would go to like the hospital administration board. And they basically were like, okay, we'll talk to him. And they'd bring him in and ask a question. He'd be like, they're crazy. They're paranoid. I don't know what's wrong with these nurses because they're women and obviously have hysteria. Come on, the 80s. Like, we should be better than that by now. Right. But we're not. (laughs) I know. (laughs) We still not. So the nurses would notice that he would do an injection on like healthier patients and then all of a sudden they would become violently ill or they would die. One of his patients was a retired nurse. And so she kind of came to as he's injecting her with something and she starts like she can't talk. She's becoming a little like paralysis-y, like she's not functioning and so she couldn't yell out for help so she starts like rattling the side like the railing on her bed Mm. and they were like oh my god what's happening her heart was racing faster um they come in and they help her and then she basically like can't talk but the next day she can like write she gets her like motor skill back she says dr swango did something to me like he did this to me. And that kind of got people's attention. But then she was also um, accused of being paranoid and um, hysterical. Of course. Another one was like a 19-year-old girl. She was a gymnast. She was riding her bike and she'd been hit by a car. Mm. And she was on the up and up. Like they were like, you're going to get out of here soon. You know, just probably a few more days. And then she has a heart attack and dies. She's like heart failure. And they're like, how does a 19-year-old gymnast have heart failure? Mm-hmm. Well, I will tell you is if you get stuck with epinephrine, please don't at me for saying that wrong because I struggle with that word, epinephrine, which is an EpiPen. Yeah. We talked about this during the Gypsy Rose cases. Mm-hmm. When we were talking about the act, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I was trying to remember the name of that. So, um, <laughs> we talked about the act about how her mom would give her like the EpiPen and how it could cause heart failure. That's basically what he was. And he understood chemistry. So he was like, mm, okay. Oof. Yeah, he's not a good dude. So basically, his year kind of comes up and he should be going into like, I think like a second year resident. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know how doctors like that works. And Ohio State is just like, maybe you not come back. Mm, yeah. So I don't think he actually had enough to actually get his medical license. And then at Ohio State, when they did like the cursory investigation or the cursory investigation, they didn't come up with anything. So he was cleared, but they just didn't want him around. They they just knew something was hinky about him and were like, get the hell out. Most people would probably try to go back, finish their schooling, try to like, you know, maybe maybe he's killing people on accident because he doesn't know how to do his job. That could be a thing. Also to note that Southern Illinois University did not give him a good recommendation. In fact, they were like actively saying, do not accept him into this program. And they still were like, just kidding. Come on down. Oh, my God. So that's not what he did. He decided in July of 1984 that he was going to become an EMT back home in Quincy. And he started working with the Adams County Ambulance Corps. The people who worked with him were like, dude, you're a doctor. Why are you an EMT? And I watched like the, you know, investigation discovery on him. And they were talking like one of the one of his coworkers there were like, I didn't understand why he was working as an EMT making like $10 an hour when he could be a doctor and working for like $100 an hour. But they kind of wrote it off that it was like he liked the trauma. He liked helping trauma, helping trauma. Air quotes. 
Yeah, super air quotes. I know you guys couldn't see it, Tara could. My bad. <laughs> it was also noted that his co-workers kind of noticed that he liked the violent trauma and that he was kind of obsessed with violent deaths. In fact, he loved to go out to like the gruesome accidents, like the car pileups. He loved the trauma. And even when he wasn't working, he would show up to calls. And one night in particular, the next day, his coworker that they're interviewing comes in and he's like, yeah, so like Swango showed up last night and he was like on the hood of the car taking pictures. What the fuck? Yeah. I don't know if he was like crawled up on it or what the hell, but like it still was like the scariest thing I've ever heard of any individual. Like if just a regular person was like walking down the street and stopped to take up close pictures at a car crash, they'd be like, get the fuck out of here, dude. Right. And his coworker said he was weird. Like they thought he was real. They thought he was really odd. Like one of the things he would do is he had a creepy scrapbook that he would work on. He would go through like newspapers, like he'd pick up newspapers like far and wide and he would cut out all this like gory shit, like people getting murdered, people getting in accidents, like the gory shit. Like he'd cut out and he'd put it in a scrapbook and people were like, he's just really likes trauma. Like (laughs) the way that they say it is kind of like how people are like, yeah, she just really likes true crime. She likes watching like Investigation Discovery or like Forensic Files. Like that's not the same thing. If you have a creepy scrapbook of that stuff, you need to seek help. Yeah, just a, just a lot. Maybe a little bit. And so, like, they were like, okay. And even, like, some like one of his coworkers was like, dude, I was reading this newspaper and I found it, clipped it out and brought it to you. Like, he was known as the weird dude. Weird. He would often tell people. Well, I think he told this maybe once, but people would be like, did you fucking say that? And then he'd be like, yeah, I did say that. Uh. So he said his fantasy accident wait for this like he if he had to fantasize about a call that he'd go to was a bus full of children that crashed head on to a gas truck oh my god yeah and then it was like they were talking about it and there's like at some point like i just kind of went numb for a second i was like what the fuck and they were like yeah like bob wire and kids i'm like what why is there bob wire in this thing like i don't know that buses have bob wire did it roll into a fence i i blanked out sorry guys i was just immediately traumatized like okay mm-hmm okay but he's just weird it's fine right and so then people would be like dude did you say that and he'd be like yeah it's my like fantasy car accident. And I, don't know if, I, I don't know if it was like you know because like if i was an emt and someone was like what is your fantasy accident i'd be like where a bus full of kids fell on a bunch of pillows and just giggled and it was fine like <laughs> come on people let's be not like i want them to crash into a gas truck which is basically going to burst into flames mm-hmm. which i'm very much triggered by this because mm-hmm. tara knows Anyone who knows is from back home now. Yeah. But weirdo Swango isn't going to go any differently. He's just weird. One time in particular, he brought in a box of donuts for his coworkers because it's noted that right before this, they were teasing him about being a doctor and being a weirdo. And, you know, because he likes children on fire. I don't know. He's weird shit. So they're making fun of him. And so what he does is he brings in donuts. Mm, I'm scared. And he's like, hey, guys, look at Brad and Donuts. And like the Discovery investigation is like the funniest thing because it's like this guy walks in and he's like, hey, guys, look what I got. And it's like a box. And you like you're like, oh, it's donuts. And then they open it, like open up and there's all these donuts and all these guys just like run over and they're like, I'm getting a donut. Like (laughs) 
you know, investigation discovery style. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And they all eat donuts except for him. Well, this one guy that they keep interviewing throughout the investigation discovery, he gets like violently ill. But mind you, right before that, he kind of noticed that there was something wrong with the donuts. He's like, dude, you know, like glazed donuts, like you bite into them, typically like they spring back up. Well, it wasn't. So he was like, what's wrong with this? And he's like, oh yeah, they're day olds. Oh. And they're like, dude, you didn't eat, you don't even like us enough to bring us fresh donuts. Like I'm pretty sure they cost the same. Yeah. So they got sick. And then another time this guy and he were working a um like a football game, you know, you see the paramedics out there and they were working. And Swango goes, you know what? I'm going to go grab a soda. Do you want one? And he's like, sure, thanks. And he comes back and he's drinking the soda. And then he gets violently ill again. Mm. And like Swango's like, here. And at this point in time, everyone has gotten sick multiple times that work with him. They're like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. And so they're like, he is trying to poison us. Right. So they wait till he goes out on a call. And they run and like get into his locker and they go into his bag and he has two, like he's an empty bottle of ant killer, which contains arsenic. Oh, God. And he has like another bottle that's full. And obviously they're EMTs, so they know the side effects of arsenic poisoning. Mm -hmm. And they're like, holy shit, it's dizziness, it's vomiting, it's abdomen cramping, it's like all these things. Like, dude, that's what we have. Yeah. And so like, holy shit. So, like, Swango would always, like, make the tea. Like, they'd have, like, a pitcher of sweet tea or something like that. And he'd always make it. They were like, okay, we have to prove that he's doing... Because it's, it's like, one thing to have ant killer in your bag. Like, you could have, like, brought the empty bottle because you were going to the store and didn't remember. This is, like, before cell phones where you could, like, take a picture of something. Like, right. I used to do this. Like, I used to take, like, my makeup bottle mm-hmm. to, like, the store to, like, get a new one because I'd be like, this is what I need. Yeah. And so, like, you know, that could be it. He could have just stopped on the store on his way to work. They didn't have proof. So one day he's making the tea and they kind of orchestrate and this, like, call happens and it's pretty far away. It's, like, 25 minutes away. So he's going to be gone for at least 50 minutes if there's nothing there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if someone called an accident scene and then it was not real. Because I'm sure that happens. Right. So they send him out and they go and they, like, take some of the tea. Like, there's two stories. So, like, the story is, is like, two guys wrote their names on a cup and stuck it in the fridge. And they took those cups to, the like, to Quincy University to get them tested and the professor who like loved michael was like who thought he was a genius Mm -hmm. actually tested it and he found like the arsenic in it oh no so they're like now we have proof this dude is like poisoning us and he gets arrested and then he gets out on bail and then he's like basically he's like he has to prove that he didn't do it and they have to prove he did and it's kind of like circumstantial like he has the ant poisoning and it's in their drink Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, okay. Mm-hmm. So Michael goes to Florida and then comes back and calls his lawyer and is like, dude, come to my place. Like, my house is infested with ants, which is why I have the ant poisoning, because it was infested with ants. And they get there, and the investigators get there, and they look at it, and they're like, um... Mr. Swango, are you uh, familiar with the fact that those ants are not indigenous to Illinois? In fact, they are found in Florida because he brought back red ants. Oh, my God. Right? Dumbass. Dumbass. Only word. So, (laughs) on August 23rd, 1985, he is convicted of aggravated battery for poisoning his coworkers. And he's sentenced to five years. Of which he only served two. Oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. At this point in time, investigators are like, okay, so dude poisoned his coworkers, and there's all these things that happened at Ohio State. 
Hmm. I don't know. When he gets out of prison, he starts working. He ends up in like Newport, Virginia. This is where he like met and married his wife who later commits suicide. Oh, God. But has like a high level of like toxic metal in her blood. Mm-hmm. Or like, an, it's not high, I should say. It was like enough to wear like... Like notable. Right. But it was more like he was slowly poisoning her ass. Oh, Versus how he, like, generally just kills people. hmm So it's weird because, like, when he's presented with patients in the hospital, he immediately, or he takes advantage of it by putting it through their IV and it's instantaneous. When he's presented with his coworkers and poisoning their food, it's pretty instantaneous response. So it's weird that they're, like, poison his wife? Hmm. I could see it being over time, though. I know that's not really his MO at this point. But if he poisoned her right away and they caught it and he has this record, then obviously it's going to be a no fucking brainer. Right. But if it's over time and it's small traces, he's probably banking on like, oh, it's small enough traces to eventually kill her, but won't pop up in an autopsy. Right. And the thought is that she killed herself because she went insane from like metal poisoning. Right. He meets his wife and her name, by the way, is Kristen Lynn Kenny. And he meets her when he was working as a lab tech at ATI Coal, which is now like it's an energy company and it's like named differently now. But his coworkers were getting sick there too. Hmm. Weird. And he's fired from like every job he ever has, by the way. So in 1991, he changes his name to Daniel J. Adams. And he tried to apply for a residency program at Ohio Valley Medical Center in Wheeling, West Virginia. However, he was denied. Good. I don't know if he changes his name back, but he he has several, like I said earlier, he has several names. Mm-hmm. In July of 1992, he moved to like Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and he basically forged legal documentation saying who he was, thought he had a medical degree, and he basically he was going to go to this hospital to do a residency. So he falsified his criminal record to change it from saying like a felony poisoning and like battery to um, that he got into a fist fight with a coworker and spent six months in jail. And, you know, it was just a little misdemeanor. He also forged a restoration of civil rights from Virginia's governor, Gerald Bullies, or Belize, Belines, Belize, Belize, I don't know, something. Sure. And that basically said that he could vote again and that he could, like, you know, he had those, he could be on a jury. So basically, he was a member of functioning society. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. So at this point in time, he's going by the name of Michael Kirk. And so Michael basically does a good enough job of forging documentation that he ends up getting a job at Sanford University of South Dakota Medical Center. Wow. Right? And so he's there. And he's there for a little bit. Like, I'm pretty sure he's there for like a year. Maybe not a year. He's there for a bit. Let's put it that way. Um, His big mistake is that he was trying to be uppity and join the American Medical Association. And apparently, the American Medical Association does a better background check than the hospital he worked at. Wow. Good for them. Right? Like, get it, AMA. Claps for you. Right? Like, I was like, they do background checks? That's badass. Mm-hmm. And they kind of were like, um, no. <laughs> you are not a doctor. <laughs> because, you know, they they check things like, you know. Like they do now. Yeah. 
Yeah, like, you know, bored. Because he would have to, like, register his license number with someone. and Right. Which apparently that hospital was just like, oh, yeah, so excited. Young guy coming to Sioux Falls. We're excited. That kind of thing. Also, what kind of ended his time there was on Thanksgiving Day. The Discovery Channel had this series called Justice Files. And they ran the story of the poisonings of his coworkers. <gasps> oh, shit. And they, like, put his picture up. They put all this shit up. And so the AMA contacts the hospital that he works at and is like, uh, motherfuckers, have you seen this shit? Like, he legit is not a good guy. Like, he poisoned people. And I'm pretty sure somewhere in that thing, um, it says, like, and he's suspected of other poisonings and other places his other colleagues who had the heebies from him were coming forward and being like no he's a real douche and we think he's killing people like you know we've said stuff you called us paranoid so um he got fired he (laughs) he did not like you think at this point like they would lock his ass up for fraud Mm -hmm. like falsifying documents i'm pretty sure mm, i'm pretty sure that this is like a crime uh yeah It's like identity, not theft, but fraud. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he probably had to use somebody's medical license number. Right. So at this point, Kristen goes back to Virginia because she's having headaches. Their relationship continues. Eventually, she kills herself. She's become like barely a footnote in the story from what I can see. It's like everyone talks about her and then it's like she killed herself, but it's not like this is when she killed herself type thing. Gotcha. Somehow, Swango, whatever name he's using, manages to get a job as a psychiatric resident at Stony Brook University at the School of Medicine in New York, which, fun fact, Thomas's cousin Taylor went to. Oh, nice. Not the medical school part, but the school. (laughs) I read that. I was like, oh, another school. Someone (laughs) I know went there. So (laughs) he gets into the school. And his first rotation department just so happens to be internal medicine. Mm, Of course. And he does this at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in North Point, New York. Oh, fuck off, dude. Which is a huge mistake. Yeah. (laughs) At this point in time, I'm pretty sure Kristen has killed herself and... People are like, how is he still here? And people are like contacting him, the schools and the deans and everything. Like Kristen's mom contacted the schools like back east who then were like, okay, we'll look out. And they contact the school he's at. So they basically are like, dude, what the fuck? Like you legitly are not who you say you are. And he cops to it. He's like, yeah, I'm lying. I just really wanted to go to school here. I really wanted to do my residency. I really want to be a doctor. The dean of the last two schools he was in resigned, asked to resign because of this. I'm pretty sure the AMA, the American Medical Association, was like, you guys got to go. But what Jordan Cohen did, and he is the dean of Stone, he was the dean of the Stony Brook Medical School, is he sent a message to all 125 medical schools in in the United States Mm -hmm. and to over a thousand teaching hospitals. Like, do not hire this dude. He is fraudulent. Here's where Michael made his big flawed mistake. Tara, what jurisdiction does the VA fall under? Federal. The federal government. 
<laughs> yeah. So it's like he's taken these like some small little like hospitals that people can't trace him to, to literally putting himself in the federal government's way. And I don't know if you guys know this, but the federal government don't fuck with people. No. So now he's blacklisted and he basically disappears and the FBI is looking for him and they find him in 1984 in Atlanta and he's working as a chemist. Of course he is. And in Atlanta, he has this like chemist dungeon. Like, I don't know. It's Mm. like weird. It's like this like workshop where he like can basically make homemade poison and shit. Oh my God. Dungeon of death. Right. So the FBI is like, oh my God, we found him. We're so excited. We're going to serve a warrant for providing fraudulent credentials to gain entry to a VA hospital because that itself is a federal offense. Like if you take your sister's ID and swipe it or like to show and they're like, that's not you. That's a federal offense. Mm, Don't do it. So he does what every red-blooded American male would do in this situation. He runs to Zimbabwe. Oh, Okay. You weren't expecting that. No. <laughs> you were like, what's going to happen? He's going to shoot out people? No. I was like, um, is this the end of the story? Does he die? Like, <laughs> I confused. No. Oh, my God. So basically, he gets wind that the FBI are going to serve this warrant. And he's like, peace. So he applies. Again, he forges documentation mm-hmm. and applies um, with this, like, group. It's the Manina Lutheran Mission Hospital in Zimbabwe. He goes there and of course, like, it's like the, it's kind of like Doctors Without Borders, but a little less formal, if that makes sense. But like, you know, the old D's without B's. That's a joke from a movie. I don't even remember what it's from. My bad. It's okay. If you know the movie reference, please let me know. I'd really like to know. I know it's a British guy that says it. That's all I can remember. (laughs) Anyway, so like, he's over there and they're just like, oh my gosh. An American, an English-speaking doctor wants to come and help. So they're like, sure, come on in. Well, um, he does the same MO, but the supervisors over there are like, what the fuck? And I think it has a lot to do with like funding and where they're getting money. They were like, no, no, no. And so when he's suspected of this, like the first person who's like, I think he's poisoning people and they're dying, they suspend his ass. Good, good. But they do an investigation. And because they're in a third world country, they don't have the resources to really like turn around a conclusive evidence that he did this. Yeah. So he hired an attorney to like fight it over there. But then he also worked at another hospital and he was very quickly accused of something very sus. Like he left one of the syringes behind. Wow. And the nurse was like, um, hmm. Mm, just shows you that other countries are very quickly to be like, you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. And we're like, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you might be a bad person. You might be killing people. So it's like people getting sick, mysterious deaths. Also, the woman he was renting a house from got mysteriously sick as well because he was preparing her food. Uh. At this point in time, the investigation, like the Zimbabwean, the Zimbabwean? I say it? I have no clue. I don't either. I'm sorry, guys. They were like, okay, we obviously need to tell Interpol because this guy is not a citizen of Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. He's an American citizen. So they tell Interpol and Interpol notifies the FBI and the FBI's are like, hey, he's poisoning people. We know this. And so in Zimbabwe, even though he's not there, they charge him in his absence of poisoning these people. Michael then goes to a couple other countries in Africa and tries to get temp medical work. Same thing like that happened. 
But he then is like, okay, I got to get the fuck out of Africa because I have now made a name for myself here at Interpol is on my ass. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to go to Saudi Arabia. And I don't know if this is legit or they were just like, sir, you have to fly to the United States. But basically they told him that for him to gain access to go into Saudi Arabia, he would have to fly back to the United States, go through customs, and then go to Saudi Arabia. You would think that someone would just be be like, nah, I'm going to just like travel up. I don't know, figure something out. No, what he did is he was arrogant enough to fly to Chicago. And of course, as soon as he arrived in Chicago, they arrested his ass. Good. So he was arrested at the Chicago's O'Hare International Airport. He was detained by INS. And this was in June of 1997. So he had been gone for a few years. Wow. So he's being faced with fraudulent, like, there's some hard shit. And he basically knows that he is in Zimbabwe going to be charged with poisoning and they have the death penalty. So he basically is like, I'll just plead guilty. So he pleads guilty and gets three and a half years for fraud. Because at this point, they don't have concrete evidence to get him on the poisonings. And he was trying not to be linked with the Zimbabwe poisonings. So that's why he took the, like, was like, okay. Um, So he was found guilty. One of the conditions of him being in prison, like, one of the things is, like, he wasn't allowed to prepare food. Like, he was not allowed to prepare or handle food. And he was not allowed to prepare or distribute drugs. Because he's, like, a doctor. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, if a, a regular doctor, like, you know, a DUI charge ends up in prison or something like that, you know, could distribute drugs to help. But not, um, not him. He's not allowed to. It's noted that... The investigators that they're all working on getting him pinned down for these poisonings, they flew to him where he was in prison and he was teaching high school like to people like he was teaching high school in the prison. So people were getting like guys were getting their GEDs in prison and he was teaching them and he would have a graduation party and he was serving cake and like punch. Oh, no. And they were like, he can't do that. And where he was in his little prison, he had like family and friends would come visit him. And like he was had so much support. So basically, because the prison fucked up and let him do this, they got to put him in a different prison where he was not as well liked. Now that he's in prison, the FBI has like they know that like he's got three and a half years, which means he'll serve like two, which means they have two years in like the 90s to get forensic evidence to link him to these poisonings. So the first thing they did is they pulled every single file that he's ever had of every case and they started looking for things like mysterious deaths, like that Cynthia girl. So Cynthia Ann McGee was the athlete. She was a gymnast and she died of a heart attack after being hit by a car, which didn't make sense. They found that she had potassium poisoning. When he was at the VA hospital, there was a a gentleman in there who had cancer, but it wasn't like life threatening, but he was being treated in the hospital. And he asked the stepdaughter if he had a DNR, a do not resuscitate. And she's like, I don't know. Then he shot him up with some stuff and then wouldn't let anyone help him because of the fact that he had, quote unquote, a DNR. Oh, my God. You're not allowed to resuscitate. Right. In all, they exhumed three bodies. And it wasn't like they were like went in and they were like, oh, here's this arsenic or whatever. But they knew what he was using. And so when they were looking in, they found out what the they weren't looking for the drug. They were looking for what the drug would do to the body. 
and be able to work back from there. So then there was this different, like one of the cases that was, was this guy named um, Byron Harris and his wife caught Swango like injecting him and was like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm just giving him some vitamins. And then it was very shortly thereafter. And I don't know if he gave him like the full dose he would normally because he needed to get away. But very shortly thereafter, he had paralysis and he slipped into a coma and then he died a few days later. And she was like, oh my gosh, this guy. And they started looking at things like they they pulled out his diary and they were reading like what he would write. And he would like write quotes about how killing people made him feel alive. So they have all this shit, right? Like these, they have these three patients that they can concrete tie back to him, that he was the last doctor to treat them. And this is what happened to them. This is how close they came with this investigation. On July 11th, 2000, so we're in the year 2000, Mm -hmm. a week before he was going to be released, they basically were able to get a warrant. So he was charged with three counts of murder, one case of false statement, and then mail fraud, and then conspiracy to commit wire fraud. The Zimbabwean authorities also charged him with seven counts of poisoning and five counts of murder. Wow. Right. Basically, he was told as soon as he was done serving for the fraud cases that he basically would be extradited to Zimbabwe where he would stand trial and face the death penalty because they don't fuck around with shit there. Yeah, I can tell. So he immediately asked for a plea deal. He asked that death penalty and extradition be taken off the table and that he only receive life sentences. So they were like, okay. So on July 17th, 2000, Anytime you say 2000, doesn't it feel like you want to say 2000 and? Mm-hmm. Because it's been 20 years of saying that. Yeah, right. So July 17th of 2000, he was indicted but pled not guilty. And then on September 6th of that year, he pled guilty to three counts of murder, one count of wire fraud, one count of mail fraud. Because the mail fraud thing I think is interesting because he was putting the false information, like he mailed shit to the VA. And it was falsified, and that made it mail fraud. So he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. He is incarcerated at the ADX prison in Florence, Colorado. There is a book about him. It's by James B. Stewart. He is from Quincy. He is not the old-timey actor. Don't get it twisted. And it's called Blind Eye. They think he's killed anywhere from four to 60 people, but there are rumors that it could be up to 100. Because they just never know. And he, just fun fact, while he was in prison, he also tried to poison people. Like, he would make shit to poison them. So, with that, (laughs) that is the story of Michael Swango, Michael Kirk, Michael Swan, Dr. Death, 007. He is quite the asshole. Mm, Putting it lightly. Yeah, Jesus. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay. Well, what's funny is my person ends up having a few names and things like that, too. So there was like weird parallels. So I was like, hmm, interesting. (laughs) This is what happens when we don't talk. We're like, who should we pick? No, no, no. Just it was like weird little themes like that. But we're gonna we're gonna take a trip back way back. Like I'm talking late 1800s to early 1900s. Yes. I'm going to talk about Jane Toppin, and she is a serial killer nurse. She also has the nickname as Jolly Jane and is responsible for 31 murders. She is quoted as saying her ambition was to have killed more people, helpless people, than any other man or woman who lived. 
Well, you have to have priorities. You gotta have goals. Gotta have goals. (laughs) She's also noted as being motivated by the sexual thrill of her crimes, something that's not usually a common motivator for women who kill. Usually it's revenge, that kind of thing. So this woman also literally almost has the best luck ever. I say almost because obviously eventually she gets caught or we wouldn't be talking about her. But before I get too into the story, like I'm about to spoil everything, I want to start at the beginning for her. So the first thing to note is that Jane wasn't always named Jane. Her birth name was Enora Kelly, and she also went by Nora. But not to confuse you guys, I'm just going to stick with Jane throughout this just to make life easier. She came into the world on March 31st, 1854, or someplace said 1857, so it's kind of up for debate. It's like those stories with the old timey people. It's never documented well with their birthdays for some reason. So one of those, the late 1850s. She was the last child to her parents, Bridget and Peter Kelly. The Kellys had moved from Ireland to the U.S. and lived near Boston, Massachusetts. Sadly, Bridget died from tuberculosis when Jane was only one year old. And her father, Peter, was not exactly the most savory of father figures. You know, usually how this goes with serial killers. So he worked as a tailor, but he was an extreme alcoholic. And it's also noted that he was very abusive towards his children. He was also known around town as Kelly the Crack, as in Crackpot, because you have to think, 1800s. He definitely lived up to his nickname when he decided to basically go off the deep end and he sewed his own eyes shut. You what? Yeah. I read that and I was like, what the fuck? Then when Jane was six years old, Peter took her and her older sister, Delia, who was eight, to an orphanage called the Boston Female Asylum to surrender them over. They had another older sister as well, and her name was Nellie. She did not join them there. Uh, She was actually committed to an insane asylum. That's really all they say about her. It's apparently genetic. Right? At the orphanage itself, their mission was to, quote, receive, protect, and instruct female orphans until the age of 10 years when they are placed into a respectable family. And there's not really much noted on their time while they are there. But in November of 1864, Jane would be placed into the Toppin home as an indentured servant to Anne C. Toppin in Lowell, Massachusetts. She never was actually adopted or anything because this was more of a work situation for her. But she would go on to use their surname for herself. And this is also the time that the name change from Nora to Jane would occur, but she didn't choose it and did. The reason for this was that during this time, there was huge prejudice against people of Irish descent. And unfortunately, Anne was one of those people. The Toppin family had created a backstory for Jane saying she was from an Italian family and her parents had died at sea. Anne changed her name to Jane because she thought it was, quote, less Gaelic sounding and the name Jane was Italian. This story ends up working out for them because Jane had like the recessive genes of people who were Irish. She had dark hair and kind of olivey complexion, so it worked out. The Toppins also had a daughter named Elizabeth, and it said that her and Jane got along well when they were kids. Jane also didn't have the best time in school, and this was her own fault, if I'm just being real with you, because she would tell huge outrageous lies about her family to start, probably because... She didn't have much to go off of. She lost her mom and then her dad, you know, dropped him off. But she said things like her father sailed the world, her sister married an English nobleman, and her brother, who didn't exist because she only had sisters, received awards at Gettysburg from Abe Lincoln himself. She was also known to spread vicious gossip about those she didn't like as well. 
Needless to say, she didn't have any real friends at all just because she was such a fucking delight. But when Jane was 18 and graduated from Lowell High School, she was released from her duties and given $50 from the Toppin family, which in today's money is just a little over $1,000. Shortly after this time, Anne had died and Elizabeth took over the household and Elizabeth would go on to marry a deacon, Omel Brigham, and Jane ended up staying there and working in the home until 1885. Eventually, she decided she wanted to do more with her life and left. It's also noted that during this time while she was staying there, she did end up engaged, but he ended up leaving her for another woman. Oh, damn. Mm -hmm. During this time, jobs are, of course, limited for women. So Jane decided she wanted to become a nurse. So in 1887, she enrolled and began her training at Cambridge Hospital in Boston. Looking back at how she acted in school as an adolescent, she knew that she had no friends because she was an asshole, basically. (laughs) She didn't want to do that to herself again, so she basically reinvented herself. Everyone who encountered her said she was friendly and outgoing, so much so that she. this is how she got her nickname I mentioned earlier, Jolly Jane. She didn't mind people calling her that, but she preferred to be called Jenny instead of Jane, I'm guessing, because she didn't have the greatest upbringing from Anne. So that's just a reminder with the name. But she didn't completely change in her ways, though, because Jane still liked to gossip. One rumor that she spread about somebody was so bad that the girl ended up getting expelled. I don't know what said rumor was, but I got that much info. Hot damn. Yeah. So it's probably something serious. She enjoyed telling wild lies still and would say that she had been given a job offer in Russia, but stayed and just, you know, insane things like that. Why Russia? I don't know. It was like some important like dignitary was going to offer her a private nursing job, you know, Mm. because that was the thing with rich people. And they also suspected she had been stealing some small items and some petty cash. They were right, Mm -hmm. but they had no way to prove it. Jane became a quick favorite for the patients there. They had said it was because of her bright and vivacious personality. Jane would end up having favorites as well, but things weren't so peachy for them. Her favorites were elderly patients. And if you're not catching my drift, this uh, means these were her victims. Mm. In the beginning, uh, she started to see how much she could get away with. She was testing the waters, you know, per usual. She would change information on their charts so they would have to stay longer. And then she would start giving them improper medications or dosages so they'd become sicker and sicker. So kind of that slowly poisoning type of situation. Mm -hmm. She was even so ballsy. She talked about like her hatred towards the elderly and she would say things like no use in keeping them alive. And people just thought she was joking, but she wasn't. (laughs) During this time, it's documented that she killed 12 patients. Her action of choice, like I've already hinted at, was poisoning. She originally started with opium. Once she realized she was getting away with this, she upgraded to mixing atropine and morphine. And the main reason being that morphine contracts the pupil of the eyes while atrophine expands them, meaning that basically they canceled each other out. So the doctors weren't able to figure out why patients had been dying because of this. And the mix of that with other symptoms that they were having just left them confused. And she was also smart to use these poisons because they were of vegetable nature. Hmm. And this helped kind of mask them from any of the toxicology or analytical training that they had at this time back then because, you know, they didn't have very much. And she was also an opportunist. So she took advantage of her activities to enhance her 
her reputation by once they were super sick and about to die, she would bring them back in a miraculous recovery, aka stop poisoning them. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's always easy to fix them when you know what's wrong with them. Right. And what makes this creepy is this kind of killer and this whole like caregiver thing. She's also known as an angel of death type of killer. Mm -hmm. The first time a patient actually died because of her, she had this realization that she really enjoyed it. She described it as being in ecstasy. Gross. And she also escalated things and moved in a sexual nature, hence the sexual thrill part earlier. She would get on top of the patients and fondle them while they were dying in attempt to, quote, see the inner workings of their soul through their eyes. I'm really sad right now. Mm-hmm. Jessica's face is like puke. But let's just add, you know, more to this what the fuck happening already. Jane was essentially given a promotion. So she was offered a job at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which was very, and it probably still exists, but it's very prestigious and it was like the place to work and all of that. So it was like a move up for her. The downfall with that, though, is with the things she was doing, she would start to be more monitored. So they ended up catching on to at least that she was falsifying information on the charts. Mm -hmm. But basically, because of the time, I mean, you know, the time, whatever, they just chalked it up to she was dumb and overly eager and probably was like, well, she's a woman. So blah, blah, blah. But, you know, <laughs> they didn't really think that Jolly Jane was trying to do anything malicious. They thought it was just some fuck ups. Well, why would she? She's Jolly Jane. <laughs> Anytime someone says jolly, I immediately go Mary Poppins. It's okay. Jane would end up slipping up, though, and a patient would end up surviving her poisonings. This patient's name was Amelia Finney, and later she would recount, of course, after she's caught and everything, mm -hmm. how Jane got into bed with her. And as Amelia's convulsing from the poison, she said that Jane stroked her and kissed her face and told her that everything would be all right soon. Ah, so gross. Yeah. But luckily, before Jane could give her the fatal dose amount, she was interrupted and had to, like, you know, get the fuck out of there kind of thing. I'm assuming somebody came in, interrupted, whatnot. <laughs> was like, why the fuck are you in bed, like, fondling her? Yeah. We shouldn't laugh at that, but yeah. What the fuck? But I mean, like, could you imagine, like, working and, like, walking in and there's, like, a, like the nurse is in bed? Like, imagine that in today's society, if, like, you walked in and the nurse was in the bed with your spouse, you'd be like, um, what's happening? She'd literally get on top of them sometimes. Like, what the fuck? Full on not good. So the next morning, Amelia thought that it had all been a fever dream, quote, but she ended up realizing years and years later that, uh, no, this really did happen. Crazy. Yeah. So Jane's old ways from the schoolyard continued as well. She liked to steal the credit of others' hard work and people were picking up on it. So this made her not so popular with the fellow trainees and fellow nurses and stuff like that. But of course, the doctors overlooked it. Is it bad if I'm like, was she fondling them too? Who fucking knows, God. She also ended up being suspected of more petty theft here and even went as far as to steal a patient's diamond ring. Damn. Now you'd think eventually all this stuff would get her fired, but no, of course not. What did end up doing her in was really that the fact she left a ward without permission and they had also figured out she was handing out medication like candy, like drugs like candy. Just like meep, meep, meep. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, she's killing people, hello. But they didn't think she was killing people. It's crazy. I don't understand. 
but it's also the 1800s. But then, even though Jane had completed her training and had qualified for her diploma for her license, she was not given said nursing license, which is good, but it doesn't matter. Spoiler. <laughs> Don't worry. Jane didn't let that get her down, though. You know, she keeps going. So she actually ends up freelance nursing for a short while before she returns back to Cambridge, the first place she started her training. And this time, she was almost caught when she tried to poison a fellow trainee. What? You're just getting ballsy. Yeah, I will say at that time, her track record with the uh, dying elderly patients was noticed. But at first it was chalked up to they're just of old age, or maybe she's just being careless. You know, she's doing this medication thing again. You know, it's an accident. It's just bad luck and an accident kind of thing. They're very generous. Mm, Yeah. Well, one doctor was like, "Uh, fuck no, something's happening. So he ended up turning her into the board. And then again, she was fired and could not have a license. Good. But she's a cockroach. So here we are. Don't worry. Don't worry about Jane. If any of you are worried about Jane, don't worry. At this time, she actually started practicing as a private nurse for the wealthy and actually became one of the most successful private nurses in the area. Got it. Yeah. So in 1895, she had been boarding with Israel and Lovely Dunham. And for those who don't really know what boarding is or whatever, basically they were her landlords. And eventually she would end up as their nurse too because they were extremely old. And she ended up killing Israel age 83, because she said he was feeble and fussy. (laughs) At least she had reasons. I guess. And uh, people just assumed he died of a heart attack. Well, I mean, it makes sense. He's 83. Right, exactly. And then two years later, she would kill his wife, Lovely, who was age 87. And it said that the motivation for this was to gain the property and also maybe money, but none of that happened. (laughs) And then two years later, on August 29th, 1899, Jane went to visit her old foster sister, is the easiest way to call it, Elizabeth, from the Toppin family. She had invited Jane to a cottage in Cape Cod that they had went to, I guess, every year just to spend time together, things like that. Apparently, Elizabeth really did like Jane a lot and cared about her and stuff like that, but Jane hated her. (laughs) Oh. Yes. And this was really Anne's fault because Anne had always made sure to basically have Jane know she wasn't a real Toppin and that she was just there to work and wasn't going to ever really be part of the family, even if she took the name, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and always be like, and Elizabeth's so great and, you know, all that shit. But Elizabeth didn't give a fuck about that. She just cared about her sister is how she saw Jane. But in turn, it didn't matter. She, to Jane, was a symbol of her childhood torment, so she had to go. So, per her MO, it wasn't surprising to find out that a few days after Elizabeth arrived to the cottage, her husband was sent a telegraph telling him that she was seriously ill and needed to come. But by the time he made it there, she was in a coma, and he was told by a doctor that it was due to a stroke. Oh. Yeah, which is interesting. Elizabeth never regained consciousness before she died the next morning. So there's just her husband and Jane chilling by her bedside. And, you know, no one's the wiser except Jane. If she had, she probably would have been able to tell them, hey, Jane gave me some water and uh, then this happened. So what the fuck? Right. Because that's how she did it for out of hospital. She gave water, which I'll go more into in a minute. That following winter, she would kill two more patients, Mary McNear, age 70, and William Ingram, age 70 as well. Then she would also kill her own housekeeper, Florence Calkins, age 45, which at this point is extremely 
off MO because she had this thing for killing old people. And this was someone relatively young. But it's theorized that Florence basically knew what she was doing or knew something and or maybe had threatened her. So it was like a loose end. That's what people think is the deal with that. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely does. After this, she set her eyes on her next victim, which was Sarah Myra Connors, and she went by Myra, age 48. She was a friend and also a patient of Jane's. Myra would die on February 11th, 1900. The motivator for her murder was the fact that Myra was the matron of St. John's Theological School at Cambridge, and Jane wanted her job. So being a private nurse, it did pay well per patient, but it's not a consistent every week paycheck. You could go, you know, it's like if you think about like if you're a freelancer or something like that, you run the risk of having irregular pay. Well, on Myra's job, her shit was on fucking point. She had a good, she had a house, she had a maid, she had a regular paycheck, like that was salaried. So she's like, I want that shit. And uh, this bitch, she's so fucking ballsy that at Myra's funeral, she approaches the dean of the school, who was Myra's boss, and starts planting this little seed about taking the job. She says things like, so awful this happened right before Myra's sabbatical she was planning on taking. And, oh, didn't she tell you? She wanted me to be her replacement. And Jane left the funeral with a job. I mean, if you're going to commit murder, you might as well get a job out of it. I guess. I mean, people probably think I am so cavalier with death. I'm like, no, it's just, it's a coping method, just so everyone knows. (laughs) But this job didn't last long because she ended up completely failing at it. She had no experience with office work or anything like that or managing people at all. She was fired a year later. At least she made it a year. I guess, yeah. At this time, she went back to the cottage where she killed Elizabeth and talked to the owners, Alden and Maddie Davis. And because of everything that happened, their words, they let her stay there for the first year with no rent. Then on the second year of her living there, she tried to initially get an extension on the payment. But after that, she just kind of dipped out, avoided them, and then eventually left. But they knew she was in Boston, so Maddie went over there to confront her. And at this time, Jane had been boarding with another elderly couple named Eliza and Melvin Beadle. She hadn't killed either one of them yet, but she poisoned Eliza enough so that she thought she got food poisoning. Once Maddie arrived, Jane greeted her with a glass of water, like I mentioned earlier. And fun fact, it was fizzy mineral water. She used this kind of water because it concealed the drugs she used in the drinks a lot better than like regular water would. And she was also a brand snob and only used Hanyadi mineral water. And in one of the fucking articles I read, they're like, they probably did not like this endorsement. (laughs) Like, "Mm, probably not. (laughs) Hashtag not sponsored. (laughs) (laughs) It's like when H.H. Holmes was like, there's a miracle like like mineral water and it just turned out to be like tap water. (laughs) Right. This initial drink didn't kill Maddie, but it did cause a diversion. Of course, she became sick. So Eliza and Melvin were trying to, you know, help her out and be like, oh, my God, like, you need to go rest. They gave her, you know, room to go lay down in. Once alone, Jane would inject her with more morphine with her morphine cocktail. And this caused her to go into a coma. Oh. Yes. And from here, she kind of fucked with her a little bit. She would give her dosages so she would come out and be conscious. 
And she actually talked to her family at one point, but then like it was like back and forth in and out, in and out just to make her miserable type of thing. And then eventually she decided it was time to kill Maddie. Out of boredom is what she said on July 4th of 1901. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm bored. We're done. Bye. And then some sources do say she also killed Eliza and Melvin on this day as well. They're not listed on a lot of the um, like the main list for all the victims, but some of them only highlight these like major ones. They don't list all 31 of them, you know? Makes sense. So she killed three people on the 4th of July. Weirdly enough, and I think this also just has to do with how Jane knew how to put out a persona, Maddie's family, so her husband and her two adult daughters, would basically just let this killer come live in their house. They had Jane come stay with them because they needed some help and, you know, they liked her. So, of course, come stay with us for a little bit type of thing. This is not a good idea, obviously. Maddie's daughter, Genevieve Gordon, took the loss of Maddie very, very hard. And she was, you know, grieving and things like that, like as expected. So Jane, Miss Opportunist, decided that this was a great time to tell Minnie, Genevieve's sister, that she saw her with a tin of arsenic out in the shed one day and she was really worried about her. And because of how sad and how much grief she was showing, her family actually believed this and thought she was suicidal. And Jane decided, oh, good, they believe my bullshit. So she ended up killing Genevieve with arsenic, even though it wasn't her poison of choice. It was just because she had this excuse and it was also what was available, I'm assuming. Then just a week later, she would kill Alden, the husband. Then Minnie on August 13th. So the whole family dead in just a little over a month. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Now, something about this family they were well off. They were wealthy. They had extended family, you know, things like that. And one person in particular, it was Minnie's father-in-law. He started to become suspicious. He's like, wait a minute. We had all seen all of them recently. They're all relatively young. There's nothing wrong with them to just drop dead. So what's the common factor with Maddie's death and then these three deaths? Jane. Once he kind of connected those dots, he had her tailed and investigated by the U.S. Military General of Cuba, Leonard Wood. Huh, he's got some pull. Yes. And this guy, if you look him up, he had interactions with like Teddy Roosevelt and stuff like that. So yeah. they also had Millie's body exhumed and ordered an autopsy to be done. Now, like I said, they were rich, so this wasn't a common thing like it can be today. So this was a big deal. While the investigation was going on, Jane paid a visit to her brother-in-law, Elizabeth's husband, the one she had killed. And then for some reason, while she was on this quick visit, she murdered his sister and also added morphine to his food to make him sick and then nursed him back to health because she was hoping of, quote, winning his affections. And he was just like, nah, bitch, fuck you. And uh, she didn't like that. And she tried to... um morphine herself, but nothing happened. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting. After this, the toxicology report came back and it did confirm that Millie was poisoned. They had the same assumptions for the rest of the family as well, but I don't know if they just didn't waste the money on that because they had this evidence or what exactly, but they did end up arresting Jane for Millie's murder, and this happened on October 29th of 1901. Wow. Yes. So just put the fact that there is a serial killer now caught, which obviously was just not called that back then, 
and the fact that it was a woman huge media frenzy right and the prosecution was kind of like what the fuck are we gonna do and the defense being like what the fuck are we gonna do so it was this whole like oh my god what the fuck kind of thing nobody really knew what to do what kind of helped push this along was there was a newspaper interview with a guy named captain paul gibbs and a reporter from the boston journal talked to him on his opinion with this whole thing and everything like that and he said he was surprised because he's like, I didn't think Jenny Toppin would use anything as easily detected as arsenic. And if you remember earlier, I mentioned that the morphine and the atrophine to be used was a, you know, kind of smarter thing to do because it was vegetable based while arsenic is metallic based. He was basically saying the same thing. And he also said that, you know, she was very smart and she was probably much more capable at pharmacy activities, I don't know, than any kind of pharmacologist, really, like the average Joe at that point, and that the prosecution was really going to realize. Mm. This kind of helped them because they're like, oh, wake up call, you know? And it was so crazy because they even straight up asked him, what do you think she would have used for all of our other victims? And he straight up said the same mix that she did use. So, yeah. And then he also points out that, you know, Jane would have had motive for killing this whole family because she owed them all kinds of money. And also that the weird fact was Alden, he had $500 in his pocket before he died. And then after he was deceased, it magically ran away. And since she had sticky hands, he thinks that Jane took it. I mean, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But even with this, she ended up having strong character witnesses from the wealthy clients she had that she didn't murder. And the this whole media frenzy continued and it just started bringing up her past and kind of making excuses for her. And basically, the general public was like, oh, she's just insane. She doesn't know what she's doing. The defense wasn't super crazy about that, so they wanted to have a panel of psychiatrists come in to examine her and also went ahead with a grand jury trial. So Jane was originally super suspicious about these doctors and were like, what the fuck, like you're sketch. But eventually, because she couldn't keep her damn mouth shut since, you know, she's a gossiper, she word vomited everything. She told them everything. She said she was sane. She knew what she was doing, how she enjoyed it, how she got sexual pleasure from watching them die and things like that. And, you know, at this point, because she's admitted all these things, there was technically not a need for a trial, but the state attorney general decided to have one anyway. By the time the trial took place, though, enough to report on Jenny's sanity and all of that leaked out, everyone knew she was this, like, huge, huge monster. And because, again, keep in mind the time period, they hadn't dealt with this, especially in court. They hadn't dealt with a serial killer or anything like that. At this time, they had thought that there was only 11 deaths because she had kind of kept some of that back. However, she ended up telling her lawyer and everything that, you know, at the beginning of her career, she actually upped it to saying that there was like all the, you know, the 12 from when she was in nursing school and then all the other people along the way and that she estimated that she killed about 31 people. And once this happened, it wasn't trial day yet. So, Things changed again, and then they had a panel of experts. And, of course, everyone's like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Because this, this kind of stuff never happened before. And when she was on this kind of trial, she just kept insisting on, I'm sane. I knew what I was doing. And she knew it was wrong, but she didn't care. 
but they all thought she was crazy, and they ended up declaring her insane and had her committed. So on June 23rd, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and she was sent over to the Totten Insane Hospital. And while she was there, she ended up developing manic depression, and she started having like really bad senses of paranoia and stuff, and she would refuse to eat. She thought she was going to be poisoned and actually almost died from not eating, and then eventually they got her to eat. And then another weird thing was she wanted to go back to her birth name and become a nun. And even when she's already imprisoned and everything, the media is still putting out all this stuff about her. There was a big article done um, that was supposedly her written confession that she had with her lawyer that gave all these details and stuff. But it was later found out that like one of the reporters wrote this. So we don't know if everything in there was true or whatnot, but she was a crazy bitch. So I mean, I'm sure it's pretty close. Then also just everyone discussing how happy they would be if she did actually get poisoned and die, but she didn't. Jane would actually end up passing away in 1938 at 81 years old while still imprisoned at Totten. Wow. Yeah, it's a whirlwind of a story, but that's the uh, the crazy nurse who hated old people and decided to kill them. Yeah, she's a hoot. right i was just like how have i never heard about this lady before holy shit because it's one of the like early early documented serial killers right because everything that i saw would be like her and hh holmes paired together you know because it was like way back when and i'm just like oh god right i thought it was interesting because we when we talk serial killers we normally cover a lot of male serial killers i think we've only had a couple cases where it's the female so that with the time period and everything in fact i'd never heard of her before this i was just like done done deal i had never heard of her either right all right well that is gonna wrap us up here for our medical murders episode we hope you guys enjoyed this this is obviously a bit longer than normal because we brought you two insane cases of a doctor and a nurse poisoning a bunch of people and killing them and all that shit but luckily justice was served with their crazy asses but with that we're gonna go ahead and sign off and we will see you on thursday for our next stabby snippet bye guys Bye! Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.